I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 10th, 2015. Coming up, we'll talk with author Wendy Williams about her book, The Horse, the Epic History of Our Noble Companion. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Scientists have finally developed the long-awaited and infamous flux capacitor! Okay, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions a little bit, but and the jury is still out on how real or sci-fi this research may be, but NASA scientists have been working on an engine known as the EM drive that works with, get this, no propellant. But wait, you might say, how could an engine create thrust without burning any fuel? Well, it just so happens that scientists seem to be a little baffled by this point as well. The EM drive, short for electromagnetic drive, was thought to be driven by microwaves bouncing back and forth inside of a cavity. But now, after trying to constrain the device to understand it better, scientists are not so sure. Like I said, the jury is still out, as the group is still in the process of submitting their findings to a peer-reviewed journal. So is it sci-fi or sci-real? You can decide for yourself and read their non-peer-reviewed paper and findings on the NASA Technical Report Server under the title, get ready for this, Anomalous Thrust Production from an RF Test Device Measured on a Low-Thrust Torsion Pendulum. Enjoy. And if that didn't wake you up, this study may. So a new study out of University of Colorado shows that the longer people are awake during the time of their biological clock is telling them to sleep, the worse their sensitivity to insulin. Lack of sensitivity to the hormone insulin is known as insulin resistance, and it's a precursor to weight gain, energy loss, and diabetes. CU Boulder professor Kenneth Wright led the new study. Using research subjects who stayed up all at night eating, he observed that the human body is not prepared for food intake or exercise during the biological night. May seem like no surprise, but instead, the body sets its rhythms at night for resting and recovery. Eating, then, he says, messes up good metabolism. A paper on the subject was published online last week in the journal Current Biology. Wright adds that the study was conducted on young and very healthy people. One good follow-up study might be to see if improving the sleep of older people could improve their metabolic health. This week, at the University of Colorado Boulder, they'll be hosting a diversity and inclusion summit on campus. On Wednesday, Professor Noah Finkelstein of the Physics Department will be hosting a talk entitled Biases and Inclusion in Undergraduate STEM Education. It will be happening at 11 to 11.50 a.m. in the UMC room 247. That's Wednesday morning. If you're interested in more information about this talk or other events for the summit, go to the university's page for diversity, equity, and community engagement at colorado.edu slash O-D-E-C-E. That's colorado.edu slash O-D-E-C-E. If you haven't heard of epigenetics, here's your chance. This new and exciting field expands the classical genetic doctrine that each parent contributes one of each chromosomal pair to their offspring, and the DNA sequence of these chromosomes carry the hereditary information. 
Research in epigenetics has shown that molecular tags, such as a single methyl, or CH3, can be attached or removed from the chromosome, following certain environmental effects. These tags can turn on or turn off the instructions in the DNA. Parent and even grandparent environmental exposure can transmit adverse health effects to offspring. Recently, researchers in Quebec, working with mice, found that methylation during sperm formation in one generation led to reduced survival and developmental abnormalities in three subsequent generations. The finding, reported last week in the journal Science, is important because paternal effects have been linked to diseases such as cancer, diabetes, and obesity. These diseases are increasing in prevalence at rates that cannot be explained by classical genetics alone, and they highlight the potential for disease transmission through epigenetic mechanisms. In other words, parents, watch what you eat. It could affect your kids' health. Also on the science calendar for today, tonight, the Boulder Cafe Sci will present a discussion by Abigail Stengel, a University of Colorado graduate student who researches how people design, distribute, and contribute to a growing body of what is called accessible media and assistive technologies. She will discuss the Tactile Picture Book Project, a research endeavor using 3D printing as a new media platform for designing, developing, and distributing information. That is the Boulder Cafe side tonight, Tuesday, November 10th, starting at 6 p.m. at the West Flanders Brewing Restaurant at 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder. For more information, go to cafesciboulder.wordpress.com. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. I never would have made it through the Arkansas mud if I hadn't been riding on a Tennessee stud. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. Next to our connection with dogs and cats, perhaps the deepest bond humans have developed over time is with horses. In fact, hands down, the horse has done more for us than either of those furry pets. Then again, I'm a horse lover. That is, horses lie at the very foundation of our human civilization. Modern humans evolved with the horse. A new book explores the deep history of this deep bond and the far deeper history of the horse itself, its evolutionary biology over millennia. Ever wonder why, for instance, horses have such big teeth, unlike other hooved mammals? The book, which spans the globe, as well as the horse's anatomy, is called The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion. Its author, journalist Wendy Williams, will speak next Monday, November 16th, at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Wendy joins us via phone. Wendy, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So glad you are. So, as I mentioned in that intro, this bond is and has been studied to be quite different from our relationship with other, not that we would call horses pets necessarily, but other animals. And what, what give us, you know, one or two things. What is it, a, what, what about it makes it so different? Well, I think one of the things that people think is really magical about the horse is the sheer size. I know when I was a child, I was very impressed by how large horses were, or even ponies when I was five. Ponies were pretty big to me. And I think it's amazing to us that horses can be so large and so powerful and still want to bond up with us, to be partners with us in their journey through life. 
that they really do want to partner with us. Some yes, of us may not so. have that experience, right? Well, uh, no, I think I think if horses are left to their own devices, that they choose to be with us. One of the reasons I've come to decide, and of course this isn't science, but I think horses just love um, to be groomed. And we, as primates, love to groom. One of the things I um, talk about in my presentation is the affinity that primates have for grooming and the uh, affinity that horses have for being groomed and how that brings them together. I have a couple of videos from South Africa that shows that point. And I think horses are naturally curious animals who want to know what's going on, and they don't really mind being near us, and sometimes they actually choose to be near us. And on this mutual affinity, there's a chapter, I think it's toward the end of your book, where you describe so poetically this dance between a horse and its owner. And I thought no other way to describe it than having you at least read that passage, if you could. Right. This was Karen and Lucas, and Lucas was a retired racehorse, and Karen was a retired psychiatric nurse, and I think that had something to do with how she managed to get Lucas to calm down and be friends with her. Karen is an expert at shaping instead of saying yes or no. So she has spent, by now, she spent years with Lucas. They're a team. They're like an old married couple. Shall I go ahead and read this? (laughs) Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. In a, pa- in a paddock about an hour inland from the muddle of Los Angeles, an old ex-racehorse and his owner were dancing up a storm. Their elegant ballet was as vocative as any Pleistocene painting, as vital as the Vogelherd horse. Karen Murdoch raised her arms in an exquisite expression of exultation. Lucas reared gracefully, holding up his side of the interchange. In response, Karen waggled her finger and Lucas backed up. She signaled him to lope, she signaled him to jog, she signaled him to come hither and then to go away again. The exchange went both ways. Sometimes Lucas, a tall chestnut, initiated in action, and Karen responded. Lucas turned out to be an expert at getting Karen to smile, and by now he knew that her smile was likely to be followed by some other kind of engaging behavior. They were an old couple, and they knew each other very well. In the midst of their exchange, Karen turned away from the horse and spoke to me about the two-way nature of their partnership. These are not tricks, she told me. Our whole lives go into this interaction. It's an entire process. She meant that she does not command and wait for Lucas to obey, but that the pair share equally in their interactions. Yeah, I thought it's fascinating that you're saying, so it's not just, say, Pavlovian, where I teach you something, you do a trick for me, and I give you a carrot. No, Is, no. I think and how do we know it's not just that? Well, I think if you actually spend time with a horse the way that Karen has spent with this horse, you will see a kind of partnership or a kind of bonding that goes beyond um, uh, reward, pleasure and reward. It, it, Lucas actually wants to interact with Karen. In fact, I was there spending the day with the two of them, And at one point, Karen and I, being old women, got into some interesting (laughs) conversations that were boring to Lucas. So he had tried all kinds of tricks. He tried bowing. He tried rearing. He tried doing all kinds of things. And Karen just would not pay attention to him. So at one point, he came over and very, very carefully, very gently, took hold of her jacket and led her away. He didn't want her spending time with with me. He wanted her spending time with him. That's a lot more than Pavlovian. That has a lot to do with actually wanting to be with Karen.
<laughs> Sounds like something, some message for human parents. Instead of saying, kids, use your words. Like, don't scream or whine at me. Just nudge me a little on the sweater. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Only, of course, horses can't use words. So they use other kinds of things. They use motions and they use facial expressions and they use ears. There's a lot of uh, experiments in Europe uh, studying what these different signs and signals in the horse body language means. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's a complete language, just as complete as ours. I thought it was interesting you did your own kind of experiment as an amateur science scientist of sorts with yes. your horse, Whisper. Describe that, how you kind of trained him, or not really trained him, but watched how his behavior evolved. In weird ways. Yes, I would, say, I would never say that I trained Whisper. I would say that Whisper <laughs> trained me. This was my first horse, and for those who have read the beginning of the book, you know I didn't do a very good job taking care of him. I was in my 20s, and I'd always loved horses and ridden horses, but never actually been responsible for a horse. And as you can tell, I had a lot to learn, and Whisper was more than willing to teach me. So um, there were some experiences, which I won't go into because it will ruin the story, when I found that Whisper could actually get out of his stall and take care of his own needs, whether I had a second cup of coffee in the morning or not. And I decided to follow that further by seeing what would happen if I put an apple in the barn just out of his reach. And I went away and hid and looked in the window, and sure enough, I put two apples down, one for Whisper and one for his buddy Gray. And as soon as Whisper thought I was gone, because he would never do this in front of me, he opened his stall door, came out, and took not one, but two apples. He knew very well that Gray didn't know how to open the stall door. <laughs> and so Whisper was perfectly capable of having two apples. Of course, I'm not a scientist, but what that did tell me is that horses have a lot more capabilities than we give them credit for. And what do the scientists say about emotions? I know it's been known for quite some time that horses, like a lot of other animals, of course, have emotions, but to what extent and how? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, Charles Darwin wrote about the emotions of horses 150 years ago, and he was perfectly convinced that all mammals had emotions, not just horses and humans. And, of course, it turns out he's right. We scientifically know why that's true now. Um, but we are only just beginning to explore the wide array of emotions that horses have. We can find out a lot about that by watching horses in the wild do their thing and studying them on the basis of ethology, which is the study of the behavior of animals out, out in the wild. And we can tell they have the full range of emotions, the same as human beings have. And they interact with each other much like a group of teenage kids interact with each other. We went, uh, I went with Jason Ransom, a neckwine ethologist, up to look at a couple of populations of wild horses in Wyoming. And it was like watching days of our lives, you know, <laughs> time flowing through the hourglass. Everyone was arguing and complaining, and the mares were annoyed by the stallions, and the stallions were starting their stuff, and the foals were having a good time. It looked just, um, just like a normal human society. And we're going to take a little station break. We're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show here at KGNU 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. I'm host Susan Moran, and I'm talking with Wendy Williams, author of the newly published book, The Horse, the Epic History of Our Noble Companion. So this epic history is uh, quite epic, as you say in the book, that our very civilization rests on horses. Give us a couple, uh, well, a beginning point. Well, we're, you know, that's a, a very interesting question. The earliest known clear evidence of horses and humans being a, 
of humans domesticating horses is in Central Asia in a place called Bataille, and it dates to about 5,500 years ago, which is really not very long ago when you consider that horses and primates evolved together 56 million years ago up in Wyoming. At least that's the earliest known date that we found them together is up in Wyoming. Um, horses are the basis of civilization, and I don't think that's an overstatement because without horses, we'd be pretty much stuck on our own. I know that uh, we came out of Africa somewhere around 200,000 years ago and spread across the globe, but think how much easier it is to spread across the globe on the back of a horse rather than just doing it. I think one of the things that the two of us share in common, and I'm not the only one that's written this, this has been written about by scientists for more than 100 years, is that we're both traveling animals. We both love to travel. We love to explore. We love to see new things. And how much better for us, being primates, that we do it on the back of another animal rather than on our own two feet. (laughs) Our wanderlust is much more practical. Yeah, yeah. We don't really know when riding first started. The first evidence of riding is a little bit later than the evidence of horses being domesticated for milk at bow tie. But, of course, what anthropologists can't do is discover evidence that isn't there. And by that, I mean that people, humans, primates, could have been riding horses for much, much longer and not have left the evidence of bits and bridles. We all know it's possible to ride a horse and have a perfectly nice time on a horse without any tack at all. So we have to wonder if that's what people were doing. And you also say that they're one of the most resilient creatures on the planet, that they can live in these extreme climates and terrains and adapt pretty quickly to changes. Um, What are some examples of how this flexibility, I guess I'd call it, evolved? Well, you know, that's, that is really one of the things that surprised me most. Actually, everything surprised me in this book. I knew very little about um, the science of horses before I started researching this. And you grew but up with horses, so you're clearly a horsewoman, right? I grew up <laughs> with horses, and like everybody else, I know the basics of horse care now. I didn't with poor old Whisper. He had to teach me. But I know enough now, I think, to at least keep a horse safe and happy. But I never learned any of this stuff. Um, I think that I think that horses have a they don't mind being ridden. Let me put it that way. I, I think they don't mind being ridden, and I think that people do that naturally. And the bonding seems to have lasted for much, much longer than we have any evidence for. If you're looking for tack, but of course, in the Pleistocene era, there is art of horses all over Europe and all over Asia. Mm-hmm. And when you said. Uh when you grew up, you knew a lot about sort of taking care of the basics of the horse. So I'm curious now that you know all that you know, how has your relationship with horses, your own and others, changed? Well, it's changed my relationship with horses profoundly. I grew up, I'm 65 years old, and I grew up in a very traditional way, being taught that horses were tools to accomplish human goals. And I was also taught, as were many people from my era, that horses had a brain the size of walnuts and were not intelligent. As you can see from the back of the book, there are a lot of scientists now that are doing some some bits and pieces of research into the horse, horse's intelligence and the horse's mind, and we're finding out that they're much more intelligent than we imagined. It's just that they're not intelligent in the way that we think they should be intelligent. But um, I did have one German scientist say, I think horses are kind of like big dogs. 
And I was a little bit surprised by that because I had not been taught to think that as a child. And I still don't entirely think that because horses can be dangerous. But they do have more of those characteristics of actually wanting to share with people than we might realize. Yeah, I'm also curious more, um, you know, you take us to various parts of the world, and as I mentioned in the intro, various parts of the horse body. I've always been fascinated with horse teeth. I mean, they were huge. (laughs) I cleaned them when I was a kid, and Mm. they kind of scared me, you know, feeding them apples. Why are they so much bigger than other ungulates, hooved mammals? Well, I, you know, horse teeth, when I first, as I say in the book, when I first started thinking about horse teeth, I didn't find it exactly fascinating um, because there were just so many paleontological papers written about the size of horse teeth and the measurement of this curve and that arc. I really didn't understand that. But the overall picture of horse teeth is really quite amazing. It's why we have them in the world today. The first horses, the little dawn horses, who were really no more than the size of a small dog, had teeth that were pointed and sharp, kind of like... um, Not exactly like our eye teeth, but somewhat like our eye teeth. They didn't really have molars. But as the world changed, as ecosystems changed, as it went from being very warm to very cold, grass spread all over the planet. And when grass spread all over the planet, horses evolved with that grass, and their teeth changed. So they got these huge, huge molars. They still have a few sharp teeth on the front, or sort of sharp teeth. But they're really for... um, eating grass, and they're for grinding up grass. They didn't start off having those teeth. They started off having different teeth. But these molars are what made them able to eat all the incredible kinds of grass and roughage that I saw them eating all over the world from places in Wyoming where it's hard to find what in the world are they eating. There's really nothing there, but they're able to find the few bits of food that do sustain them and to chew those, chew that food up with these huge teeth all the way to Mongolia where they have wonderful grass plains to graze on. And then, of course, to Europe and New England where I live where they have green grass. So one final practical question for those who want to ingratiate themselves to horses. Is it still the apple or carrot that they love the most? The apple or carrot, or you know, um, as I mentioned in the book, the earliest dawn horses were found in some places with actual grapes in their stomach. So I was talking to a group of people yesterday, and we all decided we're going to take grapes to our horses and see if horses (laughs) like the grapes. But not wine. Not wine. Well, I think I'm going to leave that up to the individual horse owner about whether they like the wine or not. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you a lot. It's been fun. That was journalist Wendy Williams, author of the newly published book, The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion. She'll be in Denver next Monday, November 16th. You could see her at 7 o'clock for a book talk at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. For more info, just Google Denver Museum of Nature and Science. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett, and this week's show was produced by Joel Parker. The show was engineered by Kendra Kruger. Another contributions by Shelley Schlinder. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and additional music from Johnny Cash. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 Four four seven nine nine one one. 
For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger.